2: Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and in today's episode, I am so excited to welcome back to the podcast, Alison Sim. Alison qualified as an osteopath in 2001. She has a Master's of Pain Management from Sydney University Medical School and Royal North Shore Pain Management Research Institute. She has lectured at Australian Catholic University, Victoria University, RMIT, and George Fox University in a variety of science and clinical subjects. She has also worked as part of the teaching team at Deakin University Medical School and is currently based in Melbourne, Australia. Allison works part-time at Brighton Spinal and Sports Clinic and welcomes referrals for patients with chronic pain. Allison is also the newly minted author of the book Pain Heroes. I suggest you all check it out and pick that book up. And we will have a very we'll have a link to it in the show notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So today I'm so happy to have Allison on during September, which is National Pain Month. And in this episode, we discuss the societal and financial implications of chronic pain, how Allison develops a therapeutic alliance with patients with persistent pain, lessons from her book Pain Heroes: Stories of Hope and Recovery and the importance of empowering patients and enhancing their control over their symptoms. So Allison is wonderful and amazing, and I'm so honored and happy to have her back on the podcast. So enjoy.
1: Hey, Allison, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you back again.
0: Thanks so much for having me again, Karen. It's lovely. And, you know,
1: it's such a perfect time for you to be
0: on the podcast
1: because September is National Pain Awareness Month, at least it is here in the U.S. I don't know
0: about Australia.
1: So I feel like we're going to have the perfect conversation in the perfect month for this.
0: It is. It's great timing. We, we just had our uh, National Pain Week a couple of weeks ago. So it's wonderful that we're getting this, these messages out there and really starting to raise awareness.
1: When did you first kind of dive into pain science or the study of pain?
0: So it would have been about probably eight years ago was when I started looking into this area. And it was as a result of my own pain. And I really, I had this persistent pain in my low back, upper a low thoracics upper back that radiated around into my ribs had neuropathic components in in hindsight and it still bothers me at times and just because of my training and where I'd come from and the way I was practicing so I'd at that stage I would have been out of uni 12 years I was we starting to see some glaring discrepancies in what I was being told by practitioners because I was really looking for that practitioner who was going to be able to help me and how things were panning out. So I was, I was starting to be aware that things weren't matching up. And in the end, I got some scans done, which ended up being all clear, and a very sensible doctor just said to me, just get strong. And it wasn't much more than that that I actually needed to get on with things. He did some very, very vague in hindsight pain education. So but really just based on the idea that pain wasn't equal to tissue damage, or it also wasn't equal to posture or malalignment or all those things that were probably going on in my head, or you know, joints not moving, things like that. And I took him on his word and I actually did get strong. So I, I switched from doing more cardio based stuff and being a bit hit and miss with my exercise and I started lifting I started deadlifting and squatting and really consistently getting to the gym I started running a lot more and I got quite fit and within 6 months the vast majority of my pain had gone away probably off the back of the reassurance as well so I was I stopped looking for things I stopped getting all the passive treatments that I was getting and so it was almost like I sold it to myself or I I experienced it for myself that this was the way forward and I was already in that phase that a lot of people were that I guess with that my own experience as well was that I was probably having that career crisis where I couldn't stay in this industry where I knew things weren't quite right and I couldn't keep doing the, the things that I was doing and I came across this master's of pain science that Sydney Uni were offering and at the time I I wasn't quite sure whether I should do it it was quite a big investment it was a big deal I had two small kids and um, subsequently became pregnant with a third and it required a lot of time to study and things like that and uh, a couple of people said to me look just do it and you'll figure out what to do with with the degree and it certainly has panned out like that. So it took me quite a while to get that, get through that. It was about four years of study and uh, I finished it about 18 months ago, two years ago. So that's probably, that's where I'm at now.
1: Have you noticed any shifts in healthcare or in, in practice with other practitioners when it comes to, the science behind pain and and how practitioners are utilizing that within their patient populations?
0: Look, there certainly seems to be a shift. And from my perspective, it feels like a really big shift. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that we live in these little bubbles where mm-hmm. we hang out with this people with similar likes and and beliefs and we're often in our similar forums and things like that. So we forget that whilst a group of us might be changing our our views and the way that we practice that it's not essentially happening across healthcare industries. Having said that, however, I have I've worked in in the states in the physical therapy colleges and seeing that they are beginning to adopt some of these changes and an understanding and, and a recognition that things need to change. But I think what they find is how to integrate that is really difficult because what they'll be doing is teaching very biomechanical, you know, old style stuff that, that you and I would have been taught in mm-hmm. one class and then literally walking into the next class that I might have been teaching and if you're teaching it in, in final year, it's blowing their minds uh, and quite frustrating, obviously. If you're teaching it in, in the earlier years, in first and second years, it's really, really hard. It's this complete clash of ideas that's going on in, in people's brains and the bio stuff is really important. They do need to understand the basic anatomy and physiology and, and the acute pain side of things. But then to marry it up with these more biopsychosocial principles is is really difficult but obviously uh, much better to be taking that idea from those earlier years than than the later years so i do feel like things are are changing there is a bit of buzz around pain certainly the the uh venture capitalists are onto it from what i understand i think they're they're onto the idea that pain and obesity are are where we should be putting our dollars into in terms of making money um which if we're going to be a bit cynical about that that might uh that might take away from those biopsychosocial principles because they, they don't always uh, lend to financial gain, especially the the psychosocial bits. But uh, yeah, I think people are starting to catch on, but these things take ages to translate through to shifts in in healthcare systems.
1: Yeah, there's no question, and I think it's interesting you brought up the the venture capitalists being interested because I had interviewed Beth Darnell. Uh, a couple of uh, last week, I think, and she spoke in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum about pain. And here is this, you know, Davos is the biggest meeting of the year where you have, you know, talk about venture capitalists and, and people with access to large quantities of cash. And she was able to talk about pain and was able to talk about it from a biopsychosocial Uh, standpoint. And I think if we can get more people doing things like that, you may have bigger shifts, more seismic shifts, uh, perhaps in policy and perhaps in in research funding, which is where you really need to have the shifts. Because if you don't have funding for research and you don't have research out there, it's hard to say that A, that the biopsychosocial uh, framework may be a better framework than the biomechanical framework
0: I think you 're exactly right, and you know good on beth she 's doing an absolutely fabulous job she 's uh, a real leader in in the industry i, I and I completely agree I think if we 're talking about economics and we talk about the costs of of chronic pain and just what it costs in terms of not just healthcare utilization but disability payments and uh, you know for us work cover payments and all those all those systems that have to run in order to uh, to help rehabilitate people there enormously expensive.
1: Enormously, yes. I think in the yeah. US alone, back, just back and neck pain. So we're not talking mm. about pain anywhere else. Just neck and back pain is something mm. to the tune of $96 billion
0: mm. when, when you're talking
1: about utilization of healthcare, missed work, disability, so on and so forth.
0: And like a lot of these chronic diseases like diabetes and uh, like obesity, they're they're not there's there isn't a a silver bullet or a quick fix these are there's a chronic biopsychosocial conditions that need to be approached from that and again that that cynical side of me that's that where the venture capitalists are cottoning onto this idea and saying well look obesity is where the money is and pain is where the money is i think all that's going to end up being is the idea that they're looking for the silver bullet for the quick fix which when we actually we, you know we do have a lot of research on pain I know you're saying let's fund it more and definitely from a, I think from a systems point of view how can we save our systems money and what how can we best invest that money that's definitely where we want to be looking mm-hmm. and producing some good evidence because that's what changes policy but I think I think in terms of evidence we have good evidence to say that a, a multimodal biopsychosocial approach is what's required to get the best outcomes. But obviously, you know, spending our money on allied health, which is the you know the psychology and the physical rehabilitation and the occupational therapy and the um, you know the, the nursing side of things. It's not as sexy as the prestigious mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that, which is probably where the, the money lies, which is not much difference to what we've had in the past in terms of the other the bio bits of things like manipulation or other um, other more passive approaches. And I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah, just,
1: no, it's, it
0: just it's, seems to be reinventing the wheel again.
1: Right, and it is a very complex societal problem, and like you said, there is no one quick fix. And I think, I think that from a cynical standpoint, there probably is the those investors out there saying, if only we just had this one device, and someone mm. could wear it, like a po- you know those posture devices.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's you know right. what I mean.
1: Like you yeah, stick magic, it on you somehow, bust, and it buzzes if machines. your posture's bad.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. And I
1: feel like, is that what people are looking for? Is that what the public is looking for? And then I think we get into a whole discussion on pain outside of our, like you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, bubbles or silos outside of healthcare and trying to make this conversation around pain to be a little more forward-facing to the public. And
0: Which is hard. Like, which is hard, which is hard yeah. Society, they're not, we're, we're, not, we're not used to having this complexity. We are used to having that kind of consumer mentality of a, of a money-back guarantee or things being simple and easy. And, and I think that's where we see so much anger and disappointment and frustration in those healthcare settings for people who have more chronic conditions.
1: We all have patients that come in and say, you know, I saw Kobe Bryant did X, Y, and Z, or that you know, this other professional athlete or actor, actress has done X, Y, and Z and they had knee pain. I have knee pain. So why can't I do the same? Mm. So how do you have the conversation with the, with the patient in front of you to educate them that mm, maybe not?
0: Uh, It's a great question. And often it really depends on who's in front of you and particularly how good your rapport is mm-hmm. so with with this guy I just felt like I, I'd, I'd missed something with him there was obviously bits of his story that I hadn't heard well enough uh, that and or that we hadn't quite got to that point where he'd under where I disengaged that pain equals tissue damage and that bigger picture understanding and so I went back and often when I'm, when i 'm in those stuck situations, and I think, "Oh, where do I go from here?" I just go back to the start again, and i think well let 's let 's listen a bit more let 's dig into that a bit more." So I was picking out bits of his story and saying, "You mentioned that. Tell me a little bit more about that and uh, you know at the, at the end of that particular consult, he, he ended up quite teary and really pulling out a lot of a lot more of that anger, getting that real raw anger out and from there I was able to debunk a few more myths and, and he he was a lot happier towards the end of the consult, but that's, that's not going to be a quick fix for him. He's, he's going to need to, I guess, continue to grieve with me. And that's at the, at the moment, I see my role working with that guy as, as walking him through his grief at the moment.
1: And so it sounds like if someone has a lot of these entrenched beliefs, it comes down to allowing them to tell a little bit more about their story and using like you did that sort of open-ended, well, you had mentioned this, tell me more.
0: I use a lot of that open-ended questioning style in my practice. And I really place a lot of value on listening and understanding because I think from that platform you have a lot more opportunity to make change. And I think particularly if, you, if you're if you going with sticky beliefs that have been long held for a while and they're often really understandably, it's understandable once you get their story. Uh, it's, it's really, you can't just go in there and try and debunk those if you're not really understanding why they got there in the first place. And so I, I really think we need to start seeing listening as an intervention in itself and the research says that it has value the research says that creating that rapport probably has more value than anything that you could ever do with your hands Um, you know there's 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 a fair bit of evidence out there about therapeutic alliance and so if we are going to be evidence-based practitioners, there's a great place to start. Invest mm-hmm. in the alliance. And really that comes back down to spending time and making sure that you really have understood where the patient's coming from.
1: Uh, yeah, I could not agree with you more. And what happens if that alliance never
0: comes? Well, that's a good question too. It's I, I feel like I just am constantly learning in clinical practice. And I, I love that, that I'm, I'm keeping really open eyes and open ears and uh, continuing to be mentored and things like that. So I can think of a really interesting case recently where this happened and I'd been sitting in with one of our doctor's and I watched her with two patients who were really, really angry. When they came in, they wanted to absolutely rip her head off. And they were, one of them was a new patient, one was an existing. And it was like watching magic. She she took these really, really angry people and, and in 15 minutes had them eating out of her hand. And essentially what she was doing was really uh, agreeing with them. So that the whole time she was agreeing with them and really listening to them and and digging into why, why they were so angry and seeing if she could really understand that. And uh, so myself, I had a patient coming in and, and she was quite abrasive and really rude and angry with me. And uh, I, it was a first consult, so she really had no reason to be angry with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, initially there's that reaction to that where when your hackles go up. And you think, gosh, you're being quite rude to me and I've got a lot of people, you know, like for me, I've got quite a big wait list and uh, I don't need this. So if, you, if you're going to come in and be rude and horrible to me, I don't particularly want to help you. That's, that's the natural gut mm-hmm. reaction to mm-hmm. that patient. And so for me, it was really great to be able to recognize that that was going on within me. Uh, and to take a couple of deep breaths and kind of stand back and think righto okay this person obviously has a really important story to tell and and I almost set myself the challenge that where on in first contact I was thinking well this is not going to go well she I can just imagine her slamming the door and being rude to mm. the reception staff as she storms out because she's not going to get what she wants she was um, you know, she she was not happy that this was about education, and there wasn't enough action going on. Uh, and so, I really set myself that challenge to to channel that doctor that I'd been watching and seeing. Could I actually turn this around? And could I actually see if I could put myself in her shoes and see why uh, why someone would come in to someone she hadn't met before and be quite so unpleasant? <laughs> and uh, and so, I, I really just took that open questioning. Uh, to its extreme and really listened to what she had to say and I could see towards the end of the consult where she was coming from um, obviously couldn't entirely uh, put myself in her shoes but I could see why she was why she was quite angry and towards the end of it I, I, I was sort of putting it back in her um, in her hands and saying that you know the choice is there this is this is what we're offering and you're recognizing that what you've done in the past hasn't, hasn't worked so well and and I'd love you to go away and sit on what we've talked about for a couple of weeks and then come back. And if you'd like, we can maybe start a movement program and maybe talk a little bit more about this. And, uh, and she said, okay, okay. And then, and then she paused for a minute and then she said, actually, can we start now? <laughs> and I thought, nice. oh, fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, that was a, that was a nice little win. So, uh, I, I think, when the rapport is not coming I think that's a that's probably a great technique is to recognize that reaction that's going on between the two of you and step back and think what's going on here and and can I can I challenge that but then also recognizing that you're not going to win everybody over and and uh, sometimes people are just not in the right place to hear a message
1: yeah and I, I think that you can't take respect that responsibility on yourself for them not being in the space to, to receive that message.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there have been patients, uh, that I've spoken to who've, who've done really well with the biopsychosocial approach and chatting to them afterwards and say, Hey, actually you saw one of my Pain education heroes, and you didn't want to hear his message. Can you tell me more about that? What what went on there? Because um, you know, I, I'm really surprised that it was it was me that happened to be able to feed you that information, and, and you took it and ran with it. But why didn't it come from him? And she was she was really she had so much insight. She was able to say, I absolutely was not ready to hear that message when when he was suggesting it. I was angry. I was um, Uh, I shut him down, I didn't want to hear about it at all and I didn't go back to see him. But she said in hindsight he had actually probably planted a seed, which she then heard three or four months later from another practitioner who handed her a book and and started her talking drip-feeding information. And then uh, when that person referred her on to see me, she was absolutely essentially right for the picking so she she had the information on board she'd been considering it for a while she she'd taken that idea that well i guess these these uh more bio approaches hadn't worked for her and she was ready to ready to embrace that approach so I, and i i have to remember that when when people don't want to pursue that with myself to think, well, okay, well, it's not all lost, that you may have planted a seed.
1: I think that this was a really great conversation to have for
0: maybe other healthcare
1: practitioners listening that if you have, you know, a patient who is, would be labeled quote unquote, a difficult patient, which let's be honest, when you've had pain for eight years, you're allowed to be a little difficult. Um, where uh, when you're in pain, I think you're allowed to be "quote unquote" difficult because you're scared, you're nervous, you're you've got all these emotions running through you because you just don't want to be in pain anymore.
0: And, Absolutely, and then plus yeah. there's a whole lot of other layers that come with that as so well. So many, that,
1: so many. Is
0: the the systems that they're often going through are so broken, and they're almost it's almost as if they set out to make people sick or broken. You know, right. if we look at a lot of the compensable situations where people have to prove that they're unwell to be able to access that then then how on earth are they supposed to get better? Right. <laughs> like, immediately the foundations of that setup are just, they're just never going to work well.
1: No, no. And, um, and I love the, and I love the way that you sort of frame when you're talking with these patients who are scared and frustrated and tack on a million other things, uh, that you kind of put it back in their hands a little bit. I loved that you mentioned that saying, hey, listen, you've done treatments X, Y, and Z, and they didn't seem to work. So I want you to decide. I want you to go home and reflect on what we spoke about and, and let me know if you think it might be a better track for you to follow and, and recognize their reaction. And can you challenge it? Because like you said, maybe it's not the right time. Maybe the time is, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of information. I want you to take it home. And then we can talk in in a week or two weeks or something like that. So I think being able to really judge the person in front of you as to where they're at in that journey is really important. And you get that from listening.
0: Absolutely. You do. And then I think it's also important to know that sometimes you get it wrong. Yeah. Sometimes we all get it wrong. And that's just how it is. You you can't win it all.
1: Nope. You can't. It's so true. You can't win them all and you can't take it personally.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, now let's go into a little book that you wrote that just came out. And I say little and I'm joking because it's a wonderful book and it's called-
0: It is, it is quite short. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it is. And it's called Pain Heroes, Stories of Hope and Recovery. So before we get into what you learned from all these interviews in the book, let's talk about why you thought this book would be a good idea and who you're really targeting with this book.
0: So it's, it's a patient resource. That's 100% what I wrote it for. And if I was being really honest, I, I wrote it for myself to have as, the, as a patient resource. Because what I'd often find is I'd be sitting there with a patient and thinking, I oh, just look at the look at the look on their face and when I'm describing this approach, which is going to involve exercise, which they're not really keen to do, and it might involve psychology, which they're often very not keen to do. Uh, maybe even medication that they, they're against or or they're really fixed, fixated on a cure. And they're trying to get off that merry-go-round where they've they've had so many failed treatments. Um, and I wanted to be able to show people that other people had sat there and had those very exact same thoughts. And then at some point they'd taken the leap and had got on with, a program that was kind of what we were laying li- out, which involved a bit of exercise and which was obviously graded and, and appropriate for their situation, uh, perhaps some myth-busting ideas, perhaps some psychology, perhaps some relaxation, perhaps a bit more me time, all these things that can sound incredibly flaky or ineffective when what you're looking for is that Almost immediate or quick fix, and you're thinking, I'm not stressed, or it's not. I don't need me time because I get plenty of me time. Or, you know, when when there's a lot of resistance to what you're offering, and uh, I wanted people to be able to see that people had had exactly those same thoughts and they'd gone on and they'd done really well, and they might have even got to a point that they were pain free, uh, or maybe they weren't pain free, but where they were saying things like, "Pain just isn't a thing for me anymore." So it's it's not such a big deal, and so that they could buy in essentially, and uh, and so that it wasn't me selling it. It wasn't me saying, look, trust me, trust me here. I, I, this is how this is what the science says. Because sometimes that works for people, but other times it's not. Sometimes they need to actually see that but other people have had that. And there really wasn't a heap of it out there. There, There's a lot of sad stories, certainly if you go on the forums, about people who are broken with persistent pain. Mm -hmm. But there weren't that many stories of hope.
1: Yeah, and I think as we spoke a little bit before about being more forward-facing for our patients and the general public, this is a perfect resource this is what people need to hear so that they don't lose hope and they don't kind of spiral down. Uh, well, I hope
0: which, so. Which that, can was, happen. Yeah, that was an intention. Yeah. And, and just that, that hopelessness and that helplessness and that, that real low self-efficacy that you're looking at in those patients who are just thinking, I've got nothing. There's nothing that I can do to help myself. Um, to be able to hand that over and say, look, people had those same thoughts and, and little bit by little bit, they clawed back their life, but they did it themselves.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think the stories in here are relatable. They're sad, but then hopeful, because I think that's all part of having chronic pain.
0: I think that that's obviously the common theme that started to come through as I was interviewing people. So as you know, there's eight people in the book, including yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you're our, our first cab off the rank. And that's what a lot of people have fed back that Gee, it's it's heavy, but it is also uplifting. And I think that's the reality. So I really wanted to convey the sense of loss. And that consistently came through with each and every story. And the losses were incredible and uh, you and I were talking about this before we started recording that idea that you could you could put some of those cases side by side and say well the CRPS the the girl with CRPS maybe her pain was worse than Karen's pain with with her neck but what, what you're actually looking at is the loss the the incredible loss of of life that went on during that time so for you with your neck pain I remember really clearly when we were talking when when I interviewed you saying how you felt like you'd lost those really incredibly important years in your life that you might otherwise, you know, life might look different for you had that Mm -hmm. not happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, they were quite important years to you, and you know. when we compare that to the girl with CRPS. She she lost all these things that were important to her. It, we can't necessarily compare the physicality of your pain, um, but the that that consistency of what did people lose and how low did they go? I think that was the thing that quite amazed me was uh, the number of people that mentioned becoming suicidal or just how low they got, how, how little worth they felt for themselves and things like that. That was, uh, that, yeah, they were really heartbreaking stories, but they all end with pretty, pretty happy endings. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, exactly. And so, you know, I was going to, to say, what did you learn from doing the book? But I think you just outlined it and it's that, with every story, there is that sense of loss. And I love that you had mentioned, you know, you can't compare one person's pain to another person's pain. Well, they, they said their pain's a, a 10 out of 10, so they must be really bad. And this other person said, well, my pain's a 5 out of 10. So how could they have the same level of disability? The woman with 10 out of 10 is clearly worse.
0: That's right. But you just can't compare them side by side. And uh, you know, Pete Moore. He he speaks beautifully about his pain experience and just how he lost his career. He lost, uh, you know, he had a mortgage to pay. He got he got so sad um, that yeah, he really felt that life wasn't worth living. And and the functional loss for him was was incredible. Uh, but again, you can't compare that uh, Lou, who was a family friend who I interviewed at Christmas she uh you know her third child was was predominantly brought up by a family friend because her pain was interfering with her life so much now i I mean that's that's a massive functional you know impact it's huge absolutely huge huge. yeah gut-wrenchingly sad what she went through but just shows what an incredibly brave person she was and that that information for her that turned her story around came at just the right time and it was obviously pitched at just the right level for her and she took it and ran with it and boy did she run with it and you know completely turned her life around and she's employed now and she's got three beautiful big strong boys and um yeah amazing stories but but boy oh boy they uh they're they're, some of them pretty heartbreaking
1: yeah. The, the journey to get there is not always pretty. And You're I think it. as a practitioner, when we have conversations with patients with persistent pain, we have to keep that in mind, that it's not, a, it's not always going to look shiny and pretty, and there's not a progression that's linear and that we have to allow that patient to experience all of that we can't try and say oh no 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 if you just do this you'll feel better well allow them to voice that hey listen this is how i'm feeling and i didn't do my exercises this week because and this is why
0: absolutely but i think also we have to keep in mind when we're taking that history off the person particularly if we're in that first and second consult getting the nuts and bolts or the the immediate timeline is you know it, it does have relevance and it is mm-hmm. important and we do make, need to make sure we're ruling out red flags but understanding understanding their thoughts and what went on you know you know that saying to patients wow that sounds really terrible tell me how that felt or you know tell me what you went through with that how did you cope with that uh, probably has more value in understanding who they are and where they've come from than, than what procedure did you to have and did that work and what was your pain out of 10. You know, those, the, the nuts and bolts are probably not as important as we have traditionally placed importance on, particularly in those persistent pain cases where all the nasties have been ruled out and, and they've had that, um, you know, lack of answers for a long time.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like you said, outside of ruling out those red flags, allowing the person to dig deeper into their own comments will oftentimes then direct what you need to do for the treatment or how you need to relate to the person. So they'll tell you everything if you let them, but you have to let them.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I think, uh, I think that's uh, for your story, listening to you speaking to Peter O'Sullivan on the podcast, just hearing him, him question you and he's, he's the master at the motivation. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. Yeah. So those, those beautiful open questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, hearing him getting to the nuts and bolts of you being so fearful of jerky movements and things like that and him saying to you, you need to go on a roller coaster, Karen.
1: Yeah, I still don't <laughs> know that I'm going to be going on a roller coaster. <laughs> but I will what I will say is he definitely brought out things from me that I didn't even know.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I
1: was like, and, "What is happening?"
0: <laughs> and if you look at where you, your journey has taken you even in the last 6 months, probably since you've had that that interview, you know, I can see that you're doing a lot more weights and a lot more overhead stuff and all those things that necks and upper backs are designed to do. And you've really pushed that a lot yeah. more forcefully, which is, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, just for listeners out there who might have persistent pain or chronic pain, I just went through a flare up last week and it was not fun. And it took me an hour just to get out of bed and get moving an hour.
0: Isn't that fascinating? I would
1: have to get out of bed, put a heat pack on, lay on the floor, stre- try and stretch my legs. I was doing neural glides till the cows came home with my like lower extremities. Um, and it was amazing that the whole left side of my body was so, um, for lack of better word, tight, but I would say neurally tight that I couldn't even straighten out, like I had a positive slump test, I couldn't even straighten out my left leg.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And what was going through your mind as that was happening, Karen? Well,
1: it was partly my saying, it's just a flare up, it'll go away, I'll be fine, it's not that big of a deal, just keep on doing what you're doing, keep moving. And that's what I did, I kept moving, it didn't stop me from doing anything. It just meant, okay, I need to wake up a half an hour earlier every morning because it's just taking me so long to get out of bed. Um, and I was at my parents', and so I was just kind of laying on their floor with my legs up against the wall and doing some dorsiflexion and plantar flexion for a really long time. But it didn't stop me from doing anything. And I think that's the important part. Um, but I did, it had been going on for about a week or so. and usually if i have a flare up it lasts just a couple of days and it goes away and this was a bit longer than usual and a little bit more severe and so i did go to the doctor and i did get put on a like short term steroid pack um and part of me was like is this a cop out like should i just be Can just try to continue to move and do this on my own and not get the pharmacological intervention. Is this going against what maybe I would say to a patient? Is this... So, you know, you have all of these kind of um, voices in your head. But in the end, I did do the steroid pack and I felt better in about a day and a half. And now I got me back to doing all the things in the gym, like you said, that I was doing. And so I think as the patient, as a patient... No, no. As a patient, I felt like I was making the right decision. As the therapist, I felt guilty for going to the steroid pack.
0: For the passive, reaching for the passive thing. But in the end, it obviously, it helped you a little bit to get back on your feet. And oh, therefore- yeah, no.
1: Yeah. Like within two days, I was like 85% better. And so yeah. then I realized, well, why should I have to suffer... If I don't have to, if I have the ability to know, listen, I'm not reaching for an opioid or a painkiller. I'm reaching for something that I know has, that I've used in the past with great success.
0: Yeah, and it suggests that there were no deceptive drivers going on there but it also sounds like you're incredibly pragmatic and you didn't freak out and you kept doing all your bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is the that you recognise the aversive bits, just how yucky it is. It's really not pleasant, is it? And I think that's a great thing for us to take away uh, f- for for patients in terms of empathy is to say, you know we can we can reduce the distress, we can certainly reduce the catastrophizing, but there 's you know this, the yucky bits still remain and yeah. um, and yes, you can still live your life that 's what you you showed that you got on and you didn 't drop any function at all, but you were still really aware that that pain was there, and it was not pleasant and gee, it oh. wouldn 't be particularly nice if it hung around. Uh, for a longer time. I, I think I had right. the, the same kind of thing happen when I, I had a flare-up. So very similar um, circumstances, starting back at uh, a new job. I was aware that I was a little bit wound up and in a, in a good good way. I was excited, but uh, a lot of extra sitting more than I was used to and my back pain came back. And, yeah, the thing that struck me was, gosh, this is awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, exactly like you say, it didn't change my function at all. I did all the things that I normally do. I use a TENS machine. I actually did take a little bit of medication on some of the bad days. And it was crappy for about two months. And then it just went away after a great weekend with lots of laughs. So I think uh, I think those episodes, they, they really keep us grounded, don't they?
1: Yes, they definitely do. And And I think it's important to note that you want to have the right mindset. Like we both did, okay, this isn't going to stop me from doing anything. I'm not going into bed rest. I'm not going into hibernation. I'm not going to be back to the way I was before. But at the same time, from a pragmatic standpoint, you have to think, well, I need to, like, I'm going on a trip in two and a half weeks. And so I couldn't let this go any further. And that's why, yeah. that's why I was like, I have to do the, I have to do this. Um, steroid pack yeah. and continue to do everything else that I was doing.
0: Exactly. And, it, and you were probably on the way to healing anyway, and it probably uh-huh. just gave me that leg up that, you know, it accelerates things a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I've, I think it's okay. What do you want the listeners to really take away from all the stuff that we spoke about and, and maybe take away from your book, Pain Heroes?
0: Ah, uh, that's a great question. I think it's it is as the the story the title says which is uh hope, hope and recovery stories of hope and recovery. So I think that there is that we take a very negative view of the outcomes for persistent pain. And there's a good reason for that, that they are, you know, wins in a persistent pain setting and particularly in a persistent pain clinic, they are pretty hard won. And when we get them, we do tend to run up and down the hallways and high five each other and get, get all excited when we get reductions, good reductions in pain scores and, and really good functional outcomes. They, they are hard one, but they do happen and, and they are worth aiming for. So I think that's the idea is just to, to stay positive about this and to show people that taking back control of their health can be really hard, but uh, it can be done. And when, it, when it's done well with a good understanding, it can lead to some really good outcomes.
1: I agree. And taking back that control is, I think, a huge part of it. And I'm glad that you mentioned the control part. When I had the conversation with Dr. Darnell, we said the same thing. It's about having some semblance of control over your life and over a situation that previously you thought you had no control over and it was going to spiral out of control.
0: That feels like at the moment uh, the majority of my job is is talking to people about that lack of control and and understanding that so that they're really chasing pain or they're really looking for that cause and effect. And, you know, once we start looking at central sensitization, the cause and effect, they don't match up as well. Mm-hmm. I think once people gain that concept and they can let go a little bit of that, of looking for the cause and effect, because cause and effect is about control because... If I know what caused it, uh, then I can stop it from happening next time, which means i 'm in control but, mm-hmm. but we know that with persistent pain that it just doesn 't work as well as it, as it should in um, compared to an acute setting so I, I I completely agree I think a lot of this comes back to control and and people 's relationship with control and just having to surrender a little bit of the control, but also to understand that it probably didn't exist in the first place once, once those changes have occurred in the nervous system.
1: Does it feel like as the patient, we're, I don't want to say making up the lack of control, but how does that, how does that jive with the, with the patient's psyche at that point?
0: Well, I think that's a, it's a very natural thing to go looking for cause and effect because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it, it works in a lot of things in life. It, it works in acute things often mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. this happens. That's and, true, yeah. If this happens, we can go looking for that, uh, that kind of linear outcome idea. But with persistent pain, it doesn't work as well. And so the classic example is that... Fear avoidance deconditioning cycle. Mm
2: -hmm. So we'll
0: see people, um, for example, with neck pain, they'll go to the gym and they'll be doing a variety of different things in their session. And maybe it's just because they nudged their session by 30%. They did 30% more, more than they normally did on the whole. And their system didn't really cope with that. And it was not one particular thing. But perhaps they for some reason focusing on the fact that they were doing overhead things and and they get a cause and effect rule which is overhead things make make my neck worse and then suddenly overhead things get dropped and necks Mm -hmm. really like doing overhead things that's quite a natural thing for a neck and a shoulder to be doing and if we stop avoid you know if we start avoiding that then then there's your deconditioning. And and that's not just the the muscular deconditioning, but it's also the the neural deconditioning and we're losing those cortical pathways. All Mm -hmm. all of that contributes to, you know, that, that acceleration of central sensitization.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Thank you so much for elaborating on that a little bit. And last question. This is the one I ask everyone. What advice would you give to yourself as a graduating, let's just say, not graduating with your master's, but your, the, the pain in pain, but let's say your original graduation, so as a fresh new grad right out of university, what advice would you give to yourself knowing where you are now in your life and in your career?
0: Wow. That's a really tricky question to sum up, but I think the essence of it would be don't take the responsibility of the patient's outcomes on to heart, especially if you feel like you're trying to fix it with your hands because <laughs> right. I think that's where so many of us come unstuck in that very first two years of practice is mm-hmm. just when you've had those really bad weeks of patients looking at it with those puppy dog eyes where they feel like what are, you know, particularly the persistent pain patient, you you do the hands-on stuff, you listen to them, you give them that hour of attention, they feel a lot better the second time they don't feel as good and the third time they don't get any change at all and they look at you like you've, you've, you're have you deliberately withholding something and, um, and you can really take that to heart and feel like you've, you, your hands are letting you down or your, your techniques are wrong or you're just not quite doing it right when actually um, you really can't take responsibility for those things. These are often much bigger picture issues going on.
1: Great advice and will probably save you from a lot of burnout as well.
0: Absolutely. Keep you in the in the profession much longer. For
1: sure. Now, where can people find you and find the book?
0: Uh, you can grab the book on Amazon or Book Depository. And they can find me at www.beyondmechanicalpain.com. That's my website. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. At, so, Twitter, my handle is beyond m and Facebook, I'm at beyond mechanical pain. And I'd love to hear if people are reading the book. I'd love to hear what you think about it and uh, who you think it might be um, helpful for. And I do have a, a few funds put aside. The Noi Group were kind enough to give the book a bit of a plug, and a lot of people bought the book directly off my website, which meant the money went straight into my account. And <laughs> I just uh, emailed them today and said, "Thanks so much for giving the book a bit of a plug. I'm going to use that money to donate to some of the pain clinics around the awesome. state in Victoria." But if anyone felt that a couple of books would be helpful for an institution, um, please give me an oik because I, I do have a little bit of uh, thumbs up my sleeve for a few of those donations.
1: Perfect. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to donate a book. So I'm going to give away a book uh, to one of the listeners. So um, in order to do that, after you listen to this podcast, just go on to Twitter and tag me at NYC and Allison, which you're at Beyond...
0: Beyond, Beyond, Beyond
1: Pain. Beyond M, the letter M is in Mary, pain, and that's beyond. Sometimes the Australian accent is a little <laughs> to deal with. Um, beyond M is in Mary, pain, beyond M pain. Tag both of us and let us know why you think you would like the book Pain Heroes and how it might help you or your patient population. And I will pick someone at random and we'll send you the book
0: fabulous. That's really kind of you, Karen.
1: Great. So Allison, thank you so much for coming on again and, and talking about the book and talking about how to speak to our patients, which is one of the most important things we can do as healthcare practitioners. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Karen.
1: My pleasure. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.